We, in the last number of Sunday nights, have been talking about how to train our children, how to train children who will not rebel. And uh, tonight we're going to be talking about some things that apply to all of us, and uh, particularly to the older children in our home. But there are three things that we're going to kind of zero in on that will help our, our children not to rebel and will help us so that we can be the men and women that God would help us to be. First of all, he tells us in Romans chapter 12, and many of you know these verses by heart, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world. One of the greatest problems we have with our young people and with us as adults as well is being conformed to the world, becoming like the world. God says don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We renew our mind as we get into God's Word and get God's Word into us. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Three things tonight that I want to kind of zero in on that will help us in our rearing of our children and will help us in our lives as adults as well. First of all, preparing our children for their life calling. Preparing our children for their life calling. This preparation begins by explaining three phases that are a part of every believer's life. The first phase, phase one, is our vocation. Paul, if you remember in the Bible, was a tent maker. Jesus was a carpenter. And every son or daughter should develop skills that will help them to be able to produce an income to make a living for their life. And the more skills that we help our young people to master, the better equipped we will be for this phase of our life. One of the things I was glad to see in the last few years at Crown College, they have, be, they have developed a vocational part of their college that will help young men who are involved in, in being bivocational pastors. They're pastoring smaller churches, and they'll be able to make a living and then also be able to pastor churches as well. I think I heard recently that the average church, the, the average church in America is about 110 in size. And so there are a lot of smaller churches. I have a prayer group that I'm on on Saturday nights, and uh, there were 11 or 12 of us on there last night. And I believe it was the week before that one of, them mentioned, one of the men mentioned he knew of 75 churches right now that are without pastors. Uh, Brother Craig's dad has been called back to the church that he retired from, to, and he's filling in as an interim pastor, and he was involved in another church, and I think both of those churches are looking for pastors right now. So there, there's a sense in which we help our young people to develop skills so that they can make a living, and then if God calls them into the ministry, they can be involved in that as well. So phase one is our vocation. Phase two is the ministry for the Lord. We as believers, the Bible says, we are the light of the world. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 says, But if our gospel be hid, it is, to, it, hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Our vocation should be part of our ministry, since we are all to work as though God is our employer. Amen? We're working for Him, and we're working to please Him. And we ought to be a good testimony to those that we work for. Teach your young people, teach your children when they get old enough to go to work. And, and by the way, don't push them out the door too early, all right? But when they do go to work, teach them and all of us to be a good worker. 
Employers today are looking for people who will work. In fact, some of them are just looking for somebody who has a heart that pumps blood through their body and they'll show up. It's sad, the condition of our workforce in our world today. Teach them to be trustworthy on the job. You ought to be able to be trusted, amen, in whatever area. To, be, to have a joyful spirit. You know, you don't like to go into a store or you see somebody who's working who just looks like they, they're, they just got out of a fight with somebody, you know. A joyful spirit and teach them to be dependable. Dependable. You can count on them to show up for work. You can count on them to do the job that they're asked to do. We should also have after work ministries that we're involved in that will help to advance the kingdom of God. So phase one is our vocation. Phase two is our ministry for the Lord. Phase three and the most important and exciting phase of our life is our life calling. Our life calling. This is the purpose for which God has brought you into this world. Why does God have you here in this world? Now, we know we're all called to bring glory to the Lord, and we're called to to please Him. But the purpose, what is God's life calling? Why does He have you here specifically on this earth? And I believe that literally can be beyond anything that we can imagine or think. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Our life calling usually comes later in life. When it comes, we suddenly see how everything else that has happened in our life, both good and bad, fit together to fulfill the purpose for which God placed us here. I mentioned this this morning with Joseph in his life. God's purpose was for him to be there to provide the food for the nation of Israel. When they went down to Egypt, God raised him up to be second in the kingdom. But to get there, everything that happened in his life was preparing him to fulfill that life purpose. He was sold into slavery by his brothers, and, and he was lied, to by, lied about by Potiphar's wife, and he ended up in prison, and, and then he's brought out all of these things that look like difficult things, God was preparing him for the purpose that God had for his life. And of course, we find in Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good. All those things that happen in our life for good to them that love God, to them who are the what? Called according to his purpose. God has a purpose for every one of us, a life calling, a life purpose. Moses' life purpose came into his his life calling came when he was 80 years of old, of age. Joshua was the same age, 80. Caleb was 85. He had wanted 45 years for it to come, and it came. Joseph, as we mentioned, was, was much younger. God wanted Joseph in Egypt. His envious brothers were used of God to get him there. He needed management skills when he got there in the king's palace. He learned those as a slave. He needed to make the right contacts in prison. And false accusations were made against him that got him in prison to make the contacts that would get him back out before the king, before the pharaoh. All of those things, through all of that, Joseph never got bitter because Joseph had a, a dream that God gave him of the life calling, the purpose that God had for him, that as a, as a boy he had a vision that one day he'd be a great leader for God. So how do we enter into God's calling? How do we enter into that? The secret to finding God's calling is found in several verses of Scripture. First of all, Ephesians 3 and verse 20 says, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we ask or think, according to the power of God that worketh in us. Notice he says, according to the power of God. 
What is the power that works in us? It is the power of God. More specifically, it's the power of God's Word working in us that we put into our lives as we talked about this morning, those daily ramas as we're memorizing and meditating on God's Word. It's good to read the Bible and to pray. Every Christian ought to do that. You ought to read your Bible every day. You ought to spend some time in prayer every day. However, that alone does not get God's power in us. Paul said in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Jesus said in John 15, verses 7 and 8, If ye abide in me, in other words, if we live our life in Christ, and my word, that's the rhemas, the word of God, abides in you. We get God's word into us. Ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so that ye be my disciples. God says, if you abide in me and you get my word abiding in you, you can get your prayers answered. You can ask what you will and God will answer your prayers. And then he said, it's by this that my father is glorified and that you bring forth much fruit. You want to bring forth much fruit? Amen? John 15 says that we're to bring fruit and we're to bring more fruit and we're to bring much fruit. And he says he's glorified when we bring forth much fruit. In John 8, verses 31 and 32, If ye continue in my word, and my words, uh, then are ye my disciples, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. God says, continue in my word. So, since our life calling is the reason that God brought us into this world, it's vitally important that we understand what God's word says, and what that calling is, and that we fulfill it. And that brings us back to our verses here in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that Paul gives us three precise steps to accomplish that goal in our life. First of all, he tells us we're to present our bodies a living sacrifice to God. In verse number 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. God uses the analogy of a living or of a sacrifice. That is, when they took the lamb and they would kill that lamb and put it on the altar and build the fire there and set that on fire and offer that as a sacrifice to the Lord. As you study through the Old Testament, one of the reasons or one of the ways they knew that God accepted their sacrifice is when fire came from the Lord and consumed the sacrifice. And God says, I want you to present your bodies, the picture, the analogy, just like that lamb was put on the altar, I want you to put yourself on the altar and be a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice. He didn't want us to be killed. He doesn't want us to be burned on the altar. He wants us to be a living sacrifice for him. Die to ourself, die to our own will and to our own way. That's what Abraham did with Isaac. He put him on the altar. And because Christ lives in us, we are able to live by the power of the Spirit of God. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 11, he says, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or give life to your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. The moment we present our bodies as living sacrifice to God, our bodies become holy. They become sacred to the Lord. They are, in other words, set apart, for his use. 
And that's what God wants for every one of us, but especially for our children, that we present them and they present their bodies a living sacrifice. They're set aside for God's use. You know, there are a lot of things that we just can't do because it doesn't fit in God's use, does it? Amen? There's some vocations that we would not accept as a believer, as a Christian. God's not going to use us in that way. So we offer ourselves, our bodies, Lord, here am I. You use me. I give myself to you for your purpose and for your use. Secondly, he tells us, be not conformed to the world. In verse number two, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to the world. That means that we reject the sensual, godless cultures of our world today. Look over with me, if you will, at 1 John chapter 2. Look at verse 15 and 16 and 17. Many of you are familiar with these verses. 1 John chapter 2, and look at verse number 15. And he says to us there, he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, let me just stop and say this. We can get so caught up in loving the things of the world, and especially we're talking about when we're talking about our children and young people. We have so much bombarded on us, so much that you see on television, and, and now the kids, the, the younger generation has gotten into all of these uh, various video games and all kinds of things, and, and all the commercials and the ads that are put on there. It's, it's a different generation and a different world, and God says we have to be careful that we don't get caught up in the world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And then he goes on and he says, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. We have to be careful that we don't become conformed to this world. We don't live like the world around us. Amen? There's a different... If, you're, if you have a Christian home, you ought to thank God and praise God for it. There is another culture, another world out there that we understand we are not a part of. And thank God we aren't. I thank the Lord I was raised in a preacher's family. My dad was a pastor. That's all I ever knew growing up. Dad, dad as I've told you many times, was an alcoholic, got saved when he was 25. That was before I came along. I don't know any of that part of his life. All I know is him serving God and living for God. I'm thankful. There's another world out there that I don't know anything about. I don't want to know anything about it. I don't want to live that way. I don't want to act that way. I, I, I don't want to love the world or the things of the world. And thank God many of you have had that same experience. You've been raised in a Christian home. Some of you weren't, but you've been saved out of that world, and you know you don't want to live that way. You don't love, want to love the world and live like the world. And so we present our bodies to the Lord, a living sacrifice. Look at James chapter 4. In James chapter 4 and verse number 4, notice what the Lord says there, James 4 and verse 4. These are pretty, pretty strong, powerful words. The Lord says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Who are we friends with? Are we friends with the world, or are we friends with God? 
And we could go down the list and name all kinds of things that you should do or shouldn't do. But you and I, if you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit of God living within you. And when God's Holy Spirit convicts you about something, then you ought to understand that you're to follow him and not the world. And by the way, I have a lot of times people will ask me, well, what about this? Is it okay for this? Most of the time, if you have to ask the question, you already know the answer. Amen? Because you have the whole, same Holy Spirit living in you as I have living in me. Don't be conformed to the world. So present our bodies a living sacrifice. Be not conformed to the world. Thirdly, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We have a, we have a mind up here. That's our head brain. We have a heart. That's sort of our heart mind or heart brain. And we have our reins, the Bible talks about, our gut brain. I was doing some reading. In fact, I, was, I had an appointment with the doctor this week, and I was talking to him. He was talking to me about some things in relation to serotonin and so forth. And I said, you know, I was reading, I was doing some reading. I said, I read that 5% of the serotonin is produced in our mind, and 95% is produced in our gut. And he said, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And you see... God wants us to give all of us, all of our mind, our, our heart, our reins, to give them to the Lord. We are transformed in the image of Christ by daily renewing our mind in the Word of God. And we do that as we talked about this morning. We memorize God's Word, and then we meditate upon it. And God takes that Word when we're asleep at nighttime and takes it to our heart and our reins and transforms our life and makes us a different person, makes us the person that God wants us to be. The light of the living word will block out the sensual fears and the damaging thoughts as we meditate on it. And when we go to sleep at nighttime, our mind's still working all night long. Now, some of you, there's a question about that. You have to have a mind for it to still be working. But as we put that word into our minds and into our heart, it transforms our four inborn fears that all of us have to deal with, and that's the fear of rejection and the fear of failure and the fear of poverty and the fear of pain and death. And those rhemas of God's Word, as we build them into our hearts and lives, God will use them to instruct us and to help us to deal with those fears in our life. David said in Psalm 16, verse 7, he said, I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. My reins instruct me in the night season. Psalm 63, verses 4 and 5, my soul, that's my mind, will, and emotions, my, my head, my soul, he says, shall be satisfied as with Mara and fatness. That's good health. We're satisfied with Mara and fatness. And my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. And all of this that God is doing in our hearts and our lives as we're building the Word of God and as we're meditating, it is all so that we may prove what the end of verse 2 says, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And without daily some type of accountability, you nor your children will be successful in carrying out that daily meditation on God's Word. That brings me to the second thing, the second that will help us to rear children that will not rebel against God. And this is good for our kids and for us as adults as well. We've talked about this before. And that is to set up special fund for God's supernatural provision. To set up a special fund for God's supernatural provision. One of the greatest challenges 
that your sons and daughters will face in their life has to do with their finances. Most people go through life from one financial pressure to another, whether they're rich or poor. Those that are rich are concerned about their assets. Those that are poor are worried about not having enough money or running out of money. And all of those pressures are totally unnecessary if we apply the wisdom from God's Word that He gives us about our finances. Train your sons and daughters for true success. And if you do that, it must include teaching them what God's Word says about finances and about money. Because it's so easy for them to build their lives around money. Our world today has two gods, sex and money. Those are the two things the world lives for. That means we've got to train our children and our young people to build their lives around God and the church and the Word of God and not around the gods of this world. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 says, The love of money is what? The, the love of money, not money. The love of money is the root of, what's the next word? All evil. That's interesting, isn't it? God says all evil, you've heard the saying, follow the money. Amen? Follow the money. The love of money is the root of all evil, God says. And God wants us and God deserves to be the Lord of our life. And he tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, he says, But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. It is God that gives us the power to get wealth. God is the one behind all money because he's the one that created the gold and the silver and the precious stones. God created all of that. And so he's behind it. And he provides money for us for four purposes. There's four reasons why God gives us money. Number one, to provide for our basic needs. God wants to take care of our basic needs. Amen? He identifies our basic needs. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 8, he says this, And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. Well, that's pretty basic, isn't it? God said if you've got clothes to wear and food to eat, you ought to be happy, content. He assures us that He's aware of these needs, and He will make sure that those needs are met for us in our life. In Matthew 6 and verse 22, or verse 24, he said, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon, or God and money. You can't serve both. Matthew 6, 26, Jesus said, Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap and gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? God said, Look at the birds. How many of you have bird feeders out in your, somewhere on your property? You got bird feeders? That's a few hands are out there. You, you, you like to feed the birds, okay? Or you like to watch them. You, you like to, some of you got your little books and you figure out which kind of birds and you got all that stuff. And, and, and then other people are just birds themselves and other people are watching people and all. But anyway, God says this, if you and I care about the birds, how much more does God care about them? And he says, the fowls of the air, they don't build barns. He said, they, they don't, they don't uh, sow the crops and so forth that are out there. They sow not, neither do they reap nor gather in barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. And then he says this, are ye not much better than they? In other words, God says, don't you think you're more important to God than the birds? If he takes care of them, he'll take care of you. 
The basic needs God will provide. You and I must not miss the principle that's being taught in this verse. Jesus does feed the birds of the air, but he does not set out little piles of seed for them to eat. Okay? It's okay for you to do that. I'm not saying don't do that. But God intends for them to seek it out and find it, doesn't he? Even if you have your bird feeder out there, they've got to come find it and come get it, don't they? And we have to do the same for our basic needs. God will provide for them, but we have to work for them. 2 Timothy or 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, If any would not work, neither should he eat. We ask God for our, da- our daily food, and God says, He that asketh, receiveth, and him that knocketh, it shall be opened. He that seeketh, findeth. God expects us to do our part, but he will provide and take care of our daily needs. Every young adult in your family should find ways to earn money and learn how to use it wisely. This is also the time to begin learning what we call saleable skills. Learn how to do things that will help you to earn money. So God gives us money, first of all, to provide for our basic needs. The second reason God gives us money is to give direction for decisions in our life. To give directions for decisions. Most decisions in our life require money. If God has provided the money then it helps us to make the decision, doesn't it? If God does not provide the money, it helps us to make the decision. It helps us to understand not to do it. And so we need to teach our young people that if God wants us to do something, pray about it. He will provide. If he doesn't, then don't buy it. Don't do it. And I think it's a great thing to teach our young people the many biblical principles that are given on how and why we should not borrow money. I think the only person in the Bible that I know of that could have floated alone might have been Noah to build the ark. He didn't, but he could have, I guess. But we need to ask our sons and daughters, let them do a Bible study. Go through your Bible and and, and maybe even do it with them. Find 10 biblical reasons why we must not borrow money. Even make a commitment as a young person that I'll not go into debt, I'll not borrow money, and that will go a long way to helping you be prepared for financial success in our world today. Free from the financial pressures and the grief and the sorrow that comes as a result of it. Proverbs 22.7 says this, The borrower is servant to the lender. When you borrow, you become a servant to the lender. Also, when we borrow money, We rob God of his ability to provide the exact amount that we need at the exact time that is needed. And one of the great testimonies to your children is you you teach them and you show them how we pray and how God provides exactly what we need at exactly the right time. And we understand that he cares for our needs and he will provide and take care of us. The third reason why God gives us money or provides money is to unite believers and make friends. To unite believers and make friends. When the first century church began in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, it says, And all that believed were gathered together and had all things common, and they sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. When the Gentiles became believers, you see, the early folks were, were primarily Jewish people. But when the gospel then went and Paul took the gospel of the Gentiles and they became believers, a problem developed because there were strong social laws that prohibited any interaction between the Jew and the Gentile. And so God allowed a famine to come, 
And then Paul asked the, the Gentiles to take up offerings to provide money for the Jewish people back in Jerusalem. What was God doing? God was uniting believers, the Jews and the Gentiles, and he was making friends with each other. God provides funds for us, and sometimes God even creates famines or difficulties or needs in our lives so that we can build friendships and so that we can help others. In Romans chapter 12, verse 13, it says that we're to distribute to the necessity of the saints. Distribute to the necessity of the saints. Also, Jesus commanded us to make for yourselves friends with money in order to witness. In Luke 16, verse 9, he says, And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon, of money, of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitation. Make friends. God will allow you to use finances to make friends. Now, I've tried to follow a principle, and, I, and I can't, you can't always do it. But I try to do this. If somebody has a need, and God has blessed me to have the ability to meet that need, I want to give to that need, not loan to that need. Amen? I had somebody not too long ago had a special need in their life, and, they, and I knew about it. And they needed a certain amount of money. And, I, and I, we were talking about it, and I said, I will give you X number of dollars, but I said, I will not loan it to you. It is a gift. You don't have to pay this back. It is a gift to you. Why do you do that? Because God gave me, I don't, I, I don't you know, I, I can spend the rest of my life trying to repay him for all he's given to me, amen? God's given to me. And he says, if we have freely received, we ought to also be willing to give. One of the ways that we can see God's power in our finances is by setting up a separate fund, a sowing fund, and we've talked about that earlier in the year, of, of having in your home a, a sowing, S-O-W, sowing. Have a fund that you may start it out with a sacrificial gift that you put in there, and then as you give it out, see how God gives back into that fund and gives back to you. And God will bless you, and your children will begin to see how God supernaturally provides funds in their life because you've learned to give and to care and to meet the needs of other people. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8 and 9 and 10 says this. It says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. As it is written, He hath dispersed abroad, He hath given to the poor, His righteousness remaineth forever. Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both ministereth bread for your food, and multiply your seed sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness. In other words, God says, when you and I learn how to give, God gives back to us. Luke chapter 6 and verse 38 says the same thing. Give, and it shall be what? Given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall men give into your bosom, for with the same measure that you meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. God says the same that you give out, God will give back to you. You know what happens when we quit giving? We cut off the income, the inflow that God wants to give to us. And then there's a third thing that will help us with our children, raising children that will not rebel, and that is prepare responses for being reviled and falsely accused. Teach your children, and you have to learn, and I have to learn the same thing, how to respond when we are reviled and falsely accused. God warns that many will be offended and walk away from Him when they are attacked for their faith. 
And all of us have seen people through the years that were attacked and they just gave up. They said, what's the use? Why should I, why should I have to go through all of this? And the Lord reminds us of that even in the parable that he gave of the four types of seed that are sown. He said in Matthew 13, 20 and 21, But he that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it, yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. He's offended. Jesus was very open. He was very upfront with the fact that true believers are going to be reviled. True believers are going to be persecuted. And he told, tells us that there are going to be people who will have, there'll be all manner of evil that will be spoken against us. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We need to understand that as we get closer to the coming of the Lord, the more we're going to face persecution and reviling as believers. There are some countries in the world where people will kill you just because you're a Christian. Thank God we're not there yet. But we're seeing more and more attack on believers and on Christians. So what do we do when we're reviled, when we're persecuted? What are we supposed to do? Well, he explains to us. Look at Matthew chapter 5 with me. We have to learn to do this and set the example for our children and we have to teach them to do the same thing. Matthew chapter 5, look at verse number 11. Matthew 5, verse number 11. What's the first word in verse 11? Blessed. That's another word for happy. Happy, blessed. Blessed are ye when men shall what? Revile you and what? Persecute you. And shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Say, wait a minute, Brother Tim, how can I be happy? How can I, how can I be blessed if somebody's re reviling and persecuting and saying all manner of evil against me? God says the next verse, here's how you do it. What's the first word of verse 12? Rejoice. Rejoice. Huh. When we get persecuted, do we rejoice? No, most of us, we got our fist, we're ready to fight back, aren't we? Rejoice and be, what's the next two words? Exceeding glad, God says. For great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Isn't it amazing? God said when you're persecuted, when you're reviled, when you're attacked, just rejoice. Why? Because you're going to get a reward in heaven. They persecuted the prophets before you. They're going to be rejoice. God says you'll be rewarded. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. So this becomes the goal of us as parents, to prepare our sons and daughters to have the right response when reviling comes. Reacting in the wrong way to reviling is a natural response that we have to those four inborn fears that I talked about, the fear of rejection, the fear of failure, the fear of poverty, the fear of pain and death. These fears cause us to vigorously defend our own name and our own reputation to demand our own will, to heap up our own treasures, and to enjoy the pleasures of this life before we die. But that's the opposite of what the Lord taught us. The Lord taught us in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Not our name. We're not to protect our name. We're to protect his name. Thy will be done. Not my will. Thy will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. 
Provide for me each day what I need, not hoard up, build up all this financial security so I don't ever have to worry about it. And lead us not into temptation, not into the pleasures of this world. Those fears will be transformed as we meditate and memorize and build God's Word into our heart and life and as we quote it back to the Lord in the evening as we go to sleep. And that daily discipline in our life will help us to build a framework in our life that will enable us to understand what reviling is all about. First of all, reviling is a signal to check our level of love. When we are reviled, when we are persecuted, when evil things are said about us, it's a good time for us to check our own level of love. If we make any claim about being a Christian on the job, in school, in our neighborhood, people are going to expect higher standards from us. And if we fail to fulfill those expectations, then they're going to react to us in different ways. They'll sometimes rail against us, false accusations against us. People, especially those who are not saved, who are unbelievers, non-Christians, have a keen ability to discern wrongdoing and hypocrisy. They can sense in us what is true in their own lives, but they expect us to be different. Amen? They expect us to be different. Some may even look at us to find a way that life will really work for them. You see, what people are really looking for is they're looking for that agape love, that love that we love them regardless of how they treat or mistreat us. So reviling is a, it's a good signal for me to check on my love, my level of love. Do I really love like I'm supposed to? Secondly, reviling is an opportunity to evaluate my life. It's an opportunity to evaluate our life. Let me ask you a question. How effective would it be for a poor man to ridicule a rich man who had millions of dollars? The rich man would just simply smile at the poor man and pity him, wouldn't he? And that's an accurate analogy of when an unbeliever ridicules us, we who are believers, because we're a Christian. We're like the rich man. As a Christian, we have so much more in Christ. Look at all the blessings and look at what we have for all of eternity. And when they ridicule us, instead of getting angry, we can just smile and know that there's something in us that they don't have. And we have something in everyday life with knowing the Lord and living for God. What I have as a believer is far greater than what the world can ever offer to me. So when they ridicule and revile me for being a Christian, I can just say, you know, whether I say it to them or to myself, I can say, praise God, I've got something so much better. Every once in a while, you'll have a Jehovah's Witness knock on your door. It's all right to talk to them. Third John tells us, don't invite them into your home. But I like to ask them a question. They don't, the Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in hell. And sometimes I'll say to them something like this, you know, I got a better offer than you have. I got heaven. They only believe 144,000 people are going to get into heaven. My Bible says there's going to be thousands and thousands and thousands. It'll, there'll be people from every nation, every tongue, every tribe that are going to be there. For, I got a better offer. They think that the, 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 there's no hell 
and they think that those are unbelievers and those that are not a part of the 144,000 are going to have to live on earth for all, the, for all of eternity. I got a better offer. Amen? So I don't have to get upset when they revile me. I can just, in my heart, I can say, praise God, I got something better. Amen? When somebody gets upset with you and reviles, remember, you got something a whole lot better. And they may be looking for what you got and they're trying to test you and see if you're real or not. The accuracy of the unbeliever, when they criticize us, we can let them see Christ is real in our life. God expects us, as 2 Timothy 2 and verse 1, He expects us to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong. God wants us to learn to stand alone. And one of the greatest things we can teach our children, to stand alone in this wicked world in which we live. Ephesians 6, verse 10 says, Be strong in the Lord, in the power of His might. And verse 13, That ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. The ability to stand alone is the heritage of those who know that we have a superior way of life in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other God like our God. Amen? There's no other God like our God. And He will greatly reward those who believe Him and walk with Him and follow His ways. He will reward us. Again, 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. Now let me just say this. If our Christian life is not working, it is because the power of God's Word is not living in us. We're not abiding in Him, and His Word is not abiding in us. We're not letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly in all wisdom. There's no way we'll be able to stand against the ridicule of the world unless we get God's Word into our mind and into our heart. Psalm 63, 5 and 6 says, My soul shall be satisfied as with morrow and fatness. My mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips when I remember thee upon the bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. And then reviling is a signal to us to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. God's commands in the Bible are not suggestions. Amen? They're commands. They must be obeyed. And he, he gave us the command in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. The next word in chapter, in verse 12, 1 is a command, rejoice. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13 says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice. Inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, you know the verse, it just, two words says, rejoice evermore. Rejoice evermore. Verse 18 says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So when, not if, our sons and daughters are reviled and persecuted and lied about, or when we are reviled and persecuted and lied about, our first response ought to be, thank you, Lord, for this trial. I know that you are allowing it for my good and for your glory. And then also reviling produces marvelous rewards. 
It produces marvelous rewards. When we're reviled for Christ's sake, we share in His suffering, and we also share in His glory. Therefore, when we're reviled as believers, we are to do what Peter tells us. He said, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he's evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. Now, what does all of that mean? It means that the glory of God, the Bible says, rests on us. The glory of God is literally the glow that is upon our countenance. Moses had that glow when he came down off of, the, off of the mount from being in the presence of God after 40 days. Exodus 34, 30 says that his skin of his face shone. We are the light of the world. We're to let our light so shine that men may see our good works and glorify our, our Father which is in heaven. Reviling will make our light shine brighter in this world. And that glory, as we shine bright, brighter, as we rejoice as we are happy, as we bless them that curse us, and so forth. Our light is brighter, and those who see it are attracted to that light and will be drawn to the Savior. We'll have the opportunity to lead them to Christ, and they will be some of our great rewards when we're in heaven for all of eternity. This is what Jesus promised when he said, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Therefore, our next response for reviling is found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That's just the opposite of our human nature, isn't it? That's the opposite of what we want to do. But when we are filled with the Holy Spirit and when God's Word is dwelling in us richly, we can respond and we can love those that curse us. We can bless those that curse us. We can do good to those that hate us. Pray for those that despitefully use us, persecute us. And God promises to bless us. And then reviling is an angry outburst caused by secret guilt. When a person reviles you, most often it's an angry outburst from them because of guilt in their own heart. Those who revile us for our faith are not just against us. They're against the Christ that we love and live for and that we serve. Jesus said in John 15 verse 20, Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. John 3, verse 20, he said, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. This secret guilt that the lost person has in his heart, when it's exposed by the light, there's an, oftentimes an angry response of reviling against us. Now, let me just say this. It's not wise to expose a person's secret sins and reprove them. The Holy Spirit will do that. You and I are not called to do that. Proverbs 9, 7, and 8 says, He that reproveth a scorner getteth to himself shame, and he that rebu rebuketh a wicked man getteth himself a blot. Remove, uh, reprove a scorner, lest he hate thee, rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. 
You rebuke the wise man, God says, and he'll love you. So, our children, we want them to not rebel. We want them to turn out right. First of all, we have to be the example. Amen? Prepare your children for their life calling. Teach them to present their bodies a living sacrifice. May they see that in your life. Don't be conformed to the world and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Second thing, set up a special fund, a sowing fund, for God to show His supernatural provision. God gives us money to provide for our basic needs, to guide us in making directions when He does or doesn't provide, to unite believers and to demonstrate His supernatural power. And then prepare ourselves and our children for the right responses to being reviled. We check our own love. Do I genuinely love them? It's an opportunity for me to evaluate my life. Where am I in my walk with the Lord? It's a signal to rejoice and be exceeding glad. And God says it produces marvelous rewards. And it's a picture, a symbol, an evidence of an angry outburst caused by secret guilt. When somebody's mad, and you know, I've found this and I've said this oftentimes. When you as a parent get angry at your child... And I'm talking about really angry. Something just really gets under your skin. And usually it's because you have the same secret fault in your own life. And that's why it bothers you so much. And these, the world, their sins, their secret guilts boiling up inside of them causes them to react to us because of the light that we shine in the world. You know, there's some people you can walk in a room and somebody else has come, comes in the room, there's certain people that it's like a declaration of war, isn't it? They just walk into the room and it's war. <laughs> but you know what? There's other people that walk in the room and it's light. There's something about that person. You have, you, have you ever had somebody ask you, are you a Christian? And you say, well, yes. And they say, I could just tell it. How'd they tell it? Light. The light that God gives as we fill our lives with His Word, He transforms us. and People can see that light in our lives. And if they're struggling, many times it may cause them to revile us and rebuke and, and rail against us. But we can rejoice. And we know we've got the best. Amen? Our God is the greatest. There's no God. like. In fact, there is no other God. All other gods are false gods. Our God's the great God. Let's pray together. Father, help us as we rear our children and as we set the godly example. Would you help us to be prepared ourselves and help, help our kids prepare for their life calling. Help us to teach them how to use their finances, how not to borrow and how to pray and trust God and see you answer prayer and how to give and see you give back to us. And then teach them how to respond when we're reviled and rebuked and lied about, things falsely said about us because of our faith in Christ. Would you help us to be filled with your spirit and with your word and to rejoice and be exceeding glad. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.